1: Dr. Cubit, it is great to have you with us today. Good to be back. Today, we are going to be discussing how to know when pastures are ready for spring grazing and basically how to do it the right way. So I think this will be timing of it, depending on where we're at in the country. Some people are ready and probably out grazing and others, they're just not quite there yet. But I think this will be a really great episode for us to chat about today.
0: Yes, I do too. And we also have to remember that it's about the pastures, but it's also about the animals that you want to put out on that pasture, whether they're ready right. for Right. It, it's kind
1: of twofold, right? Yeah. Whether the pastures are ready and yep. the horses are ready and other animals. So and before we get started, any of the topics that we cover on the Beyond the Barn podcast, they're more generalized and not specific to any individual horse or any specific situation. Be sure to always work with your veterinarian and nutritionist. Before making any drastic changes to your horse's feed program, or you can reach out to us to talk directly with Dr. Cubit or Dr. Duran on any specifics that you'd like to know. So, just to get us started, a couple of episodes ago, episode thirty-three, we had a really fun opportunity to kind of get behind the scenes experience and shares from our VP of Stanley Ag Resources about how high quality forage is grown. And I think there are a lot of tips that we can take away from that conversation that will help us improve our horse pastures as well. Absolutely.
0: We're growing pastures so that that can be the end point for the animal and they're gonna graze on that, but you know at Stanley Premium Western Forage we're growing those forages, and so we certainly have to take into consideration. We're all growing plants and the end point is the ideal plant for animal consumption. So all of the things that Stanley does to improve plant quality and preciseness and precision of that growing are things that everyday horse owners can implement as well. And if you haven't had a chance
1: to listen to that episode, that's episode 33. So go ahead and tune into that when you get a chance. But as we prep our spring pastures and even into the summer, nutrients need to be replenished to keep the pastures coming back all summer long. But we can't just throw some fertilizer out there, you know, if we don't know how much or what to replenish without testing the soil to see what's there to start with in terms of nutrient levels and pH.
0: Is that right? Absolutely. And... I think that we should, I know with my own vegetable garden, I soil test every year. And especially as we all know, fertilizer prices have gone through the roof as with every other yeah. commodity. But we want to make sure that if we have fertilization in our budget, that we're putting exactly what our fields need on and not extraneous other nutrients that are not required. So certainly doing a soil test and most of your local extension offices will help you with a soil test if you Google your local extension. And they will then also based on what you want to do with that soil. So when I've sent in soil tests, I have to say, what am I growing on it? Am I growing pastures for livestock or am I growing an orchard or a vegetable garden or a flower garden or lawn? And they will give you different recommendations based on what you want to grow. So that's an excellent resource and a place to start. Another place that I think is really great for a lot of horse owners because it really makes it very simple is the University of Minnesota Extension Mm -hmm. has a lot of infographics. So I'm looking at one right now, fertilizing your horse pasture. And definitely fertilizer is necessary to promote growth and maintain plant health. It's one of the things we think about horse manure is a fertilizer, but Be cautious of spreading manure on the fields unless you have two acres per thousand pound horse. So if you've got a really small area of pasture and you've got quite a number of horses, then we probably would not recommend you spreading horse manure. We only will do that if the horses have a lot of room. Soil test every three years or so and apply half of your fertilizer needs in the spring and then the remaining half during early June always fertilize prior to rainfall. And we do recommend that you keep the horses off the field until you can no longer see the fertilizer so that it's sunken into the, right, into the ground. Right. That's good to
1: know. And then observing our pastures, what do we even look for to determine now's the right time pasture-wise to be able to turn horses out to graze? whether that be like height of the grass Mm. or Mm. any of those types of things, what kind of observations can we make?
0: This, again, depends on what kind of grazing system do you have. So are you doing rotational grazing? So you've split your amount of land into smaller sections and you're going to rotate them frequently. And if you're doing this in a rotational grazing program, then we usually recommend that We rotate every seven days and that allows for regrowth. If you have just two, like I'm looking out my window now and I have cattle, but I have four fields and I determine when I should rotate them to the next field, they're quite large fields, is when the plants are at least six inches tall or shorter. That's when I say they should not be eating this grass anymore because the general rule of thumb is what's below is above. So if your plants get really short above, the root system also comes up and we don't want that. So I don't like the grass to be shorter than six inches before I rotate the horses out. Now, horses, unlike cattle, horses nip at the grass and they rip it out and they are very selective grazers. They won't graze in areas where they manure and urinate. So then that grass will get a little taller. So we also recommend that when you move the horses out, if you can, that you mow the field to not mow it shorter, but just Mow it so that it's even, so that it will grow more evenly. Because if we allow those plants in those areas where they haven't grazed to get taller, then they are just going to continue getting taller and taller, and that would also encourage weeds. And we know that horses aren't going to eat those tall, stemmy plants, so we like to keep it right. more even.
1: And if we're not careful with the weeds, they can very easily, after a few growing seasons, take out the nice they grass can certainly that we want take them over. to consume. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Yeah. And we also know that actively growing grasses are the strongest. And so if we continue to graze, mow, allow to grow back, graze, mow, allow to grow back, then we know it's continually growing and that's going to be the strongest and that's going to be the best way to keep weeds out of your field. Awesome. So
1: mowing is a very good thing to be thinking about when it comes to pasture management. Yes. And then can we just open the gates and just, give them their freedom? Or would it be better to allow horses to go out for certain amounts of time kind of at the beginning? Or how do you
0: recommend that process? So we think about this, like when we're recording this, we are recording this in the spring. I'm not sure when you all might be listening to it, but we have to be very careful in the springtime, especially to slowly introduce horses back to that lush spring grass because we know it's much higher in sugars, much higher in protein, much higher in moisture. And just like any other rapid feeding change, it can cause digestive upset if you allow horses out too quickly. So the general rule of thumb in the springtime when we have determined that the pastures are above six inches and we think they can go out there and start grazing for the first three days, about 15 minutes a day. And four to 16 days, we're going to add 15 minutes a day. So on day four, we're going to do 30 minutes. On day five, we're going to do 45 minutes and we'll slowly, slowly build up. Now, obviously this is a guide. And if you notice that your horse gets a little diarrhea, then back off. And then around day 16, you should be at full turnout. This time of the year, I know here in the East Coast, most horses are on daytime turnout and they're in at night because it's still really cool at night. But soon it'll get hot and horses will be in during the day and out at night because it will get hot.
1: And do we need to handle this differently for horses that are sensitive to sugars and starches compared to like normal horses who don't have any metabolic issues? Or it is at this point at the beginning of spring, do we all kind of need to do a similar management style there.
0: At the beginning of spring, there are some horses that just cannot go back out to pasture. It is the wrong time. They need to be in a sacrifice paddock in a dry lot. Those are the horses that are very overweight, have been diagnosed with insulin resistance or some other metabolic disorder, have active laminitis, horses that we know in the past have struggled with turnout in the spring. All of these horses, it needs to be very, very careful in the spring. And a lot of times we just can't turn them out at all. Other horses that don't have those issues, then the program that I mentioned earlier. And I would just say the caveat to that is if a horse maybe has had some metabolic issues in the past or laminitis, but you manage it very well, that if the evening prior to the turnout was a very cold night, then that pasture will have retained all of the sugar. And the next day, the sugar will be really high in the grass. So I would probably not turn them out on days post-heavy frost. Okay, that's really good to know.
1: And you mentioned this a little bit, but in terms of actual plant growth, you know, grass is dormant throughout the winter. And then once it warms up enough and then it has some moisture that hits it, the plant, comes back to life. And so that plant growth is a lot different right there initially in early spring than it is in the summer. So what is actually happening with the plant at that point that it is different from later plant growth that occurs?
0: Well, this plant is very, very small. So it's a young plant again, and it's full of moisture because there's a lot of moisture in the ground. The sugars are higher because we've got our cool season grasses in the spring and the fall are the most predominant. And we've got higher protein content. So all of that combined, when horses go out to it, it really makes a rapid feeding change. Now, in the summertime, these grasses have had time to get a little bit more mature. So they're not as high in moisture content. Now we've got more warm season grasses coming on and they are much lower in sugars and much lower in protein. But our cool season grasses that might still be hanging around are more mature. So they've got a lot of non-digestible fibrous material. So it's really more of a change in Mm -hmm. grass species and the composition of those grasses.
1: Very good. And then Speaking back to weeds, there are some weeds that can actually be toxic to horses. So, and obviously this is going to vary depending on where we live in the country, because there are some weeds that grow in some areas that aren't predominant in others. But can you share with us just a few of some common weeds that are toxic to horses that we should be aware of and kind of maybe be working with our extension office to learn more about those in our pastures?
0: Yes. And there are so many and it really does depend on the area that you are in. And I'm trying to, I'm using my handy dandy little cheat sheet because I can't keep up with them all. Again, the University of Minnesota Extension has a great sheet, but things like bracken fern in shadier areas Hemlock is a weed that we see a lot. Johnson's grass here in the East Coast, we see a lot of that because we have a lot of cattle grazing. Loco weed, milkweed. Now I grow a lot of milkweed for the butterflies, but I try not to have that in the pastures. It's in easements or away Oleander, red maples when they drop their leaves because some of these weeds also it's the time of year and when the maples will drop their leaves, the horses are more likely to eat them. Russian knapweed, Sudan grass, which is related to Johnson's grass. Tansy, Ragwort, yellow star Thistle, you These are just a few. There are so many others. And I'll see if I can find some more. Some of it is like black walnut is more the shavings in the horse's bedding. Some, now I will say that horses very rarely will eat toxic plants. If they have something else to eat, they will not selectively graze toxic weeds where it's a problem is if it gets baled into hay so if there's weeds in the field and they get dried and they're in the hay then it's much harder for them to selectively graze those out so I'll go back to the University of Minnesota sheet it's a great one to have in your barn because it also separates out what the symptom might be so common cocklebur nightshade berries mustard seeds green acorns These would all, when ingested in large quantities, cause colic-like symptoms. Black walnut shavings and hoary alyssum The horealism has been seen in some haze, and then obviously the black walnut in shavings. That would be more likely to cause swelling and maybe even founder or laminitis in horses. Wilted maple leaves or white snake root might cause red or brown urine, the bracken fern that I mentioned, and field horsetail, seizures and muscle twitching, mouth blisters. So maybe you notice that your horse isn't taking the bit very well all of a sudden. Buttercups and foxtail. Buttercups actually have some chemical that will cause mouth blisters and the foxtail it's the actual seed head will get stuck lodged into their mouth and cause sores. Things like choke, cherry, foxglove, yew, box elder, poisonous hemlock and water hemlock. These are all very, very bad if they consume a lot of those and can cause death. Your certain types of clover can cause photosensitivity. And so that's the white clover. Well, if they eat a lot of that, their white areas can be sensitive to light. Slobbers is not red clover. It's mold or mycotoxin infested red clover. So the red clover will get some mycotoxins or mold spores on it. And it's that that will cause slobbering. We all associate red clover with slobbers. Moldy sweet clover, then they might have more Bleeding. And then we have the endophyte infected fescue, reproductive issues, and the field loco weed, aimless wandering. So if your horse just seems a little out of it and wandering, then you might look for that. But, you know, that's a lot of information and no one's going to remember all that. So I do recommend we can share that on our Facebook page right. as well.
1: That's a really good resource. And you kind of mentioned that horses for the most part, will not necessarily selectively choose any of these poisonous weeds or Mm -hmm. leaves from the trees. It's mainly if it's in hay. Aside Mm -hmm. from the hay. But what if you're in a situation, and this is just me thinking about how this could arise, but like, let's say somebody's feeding their horse, and I know people probably tend to overfeed versus underfeed, but if the horse is maybe underfed, you think that you're feeding them enough, but they're not getting enough, would they at that point, Seek
0: out? Okay. Yes. You don't even have to finish it. Absolutely. So if the horse is hungry or perhaps you've got them in a field where they're hungry and there's not a lot of grass, they've really eaten it down, and so the the weeds have become a lot more competitive, then yes, they've got nothing else to eat, so they will eat them. They'll select around them if there's something else to eat. If there's nothing else to eat, they'll eat the wheat. So that
1: in turn is also another reason of of a multitude of reasons why it's important to make sure that you kind of have your feed program lined out knowing that your horse is getting the right amount of fiber in their diet.
0: Absolutely. And there's a situation where maybe we have a horse on a weight loss program, right? We know that we have to do that. And sometimes it's a little bit of tough love and we're spreading out the hay and grain that we're giving them or concentrate that we're giving them. But they still feel like I really want to eat more. And maybe we've put them in a, a sacrifice paddock or a dry lot. You have to make sure that the dry lot has no weeds in it, whether you're spraying them with an herbicide or you are chipping them out yourself if you don't want to use herbicides, but those horses will reach under the fence and feel like they're starved and they will nip away at those weeds. So it's always really important. Sometimes people say, Oh, it's a dry lot. You know, that they can't eat it's such a small quantity of whatever grass or, or weed, they won't eat that. But they will if they're hungry. You're right. Well, and I notice our horses
1: They could have plenty of grass in the pasture, but they will still be reaching over and burning our fences to get our lawn, to get like... (laughs) Sometimes the grass is always greener on the other side. (laughs) And you mentioned this a little bit before about how horses tend to graze in general, but in what ways can horses damage pastures if we're not careful with how we feed them or how we manage the pastures?
0: So it's really their... Hard hooves will really damage the ground and compact the ground. And if you've ever tried to grow anything yourself, whether it be vegetables or flowers, it's very hard to grow plants in compacted soil. So if you have a lot of horses on a small amount of ground and they're constantly in there, they're going to keep stomping that soil down and compact it. So that's going to be the first thing. They also, as I said, they like to stand in certain areas and they will crowd around laneways and gateways. If When you're planning your posture, if you're lucky enough to do it from the very beginning, I always recommend that you spread all of the necessary features out. Now, it might not be as convenient for you, but the gateway where they're going to come in and out is at one area potentially not in a corner because they'll hang out there and then it will also block them and they'll trample that area down. Put the water away from the gateway. If you're feeding hay out, put the hay in a completely separate area. Put the salt in a separate area so that they're having to move around the field and they're not really compacting it. The way they eat, they will rip plants out by the roots. So that is, if you look at, Pasture plants now, and you think, wow, you know, I've got these fat horses, and everybody's telling me I can't have these high sugar grasses. The reason why agronomists have developed these grasses is they are stronger because they can, any things that are stronger, what makes them stronger is their ability to store energy and utilize energy. And so for these cool season plants, sugar is their energy. So they don't clump anymore. They're not like small clumps where you're going to rip the whole plant out. They're spreading. They store a lot of energy. They withstand trampling. And so that's ideal from a management standpoint, as far as they're grazing them and trampling them, but sometimes not ideal for the sugar content for a lot of our horses. So yeah. Horses are pretty tough right. on pastures, especially if they've only got a small right. amount of land.
1: It makes me think about too tef grass because although it can be a really great hay or dry forage for you know horses to consume, especially if they need the low sugar, low starch, it's not really an ideal grass for actually grazing because of how shallow
0: rooted that plant is. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and remember that in the summertime especially when the horses graze those plants up, the top layer of soil isn't very moist. The moisture is further down. Mm -hmm. you got to dig down to find the moisture. And so we want to keep the roots down into that moisture-dense area of the soil. And if we graze too short, the roots are going to come up. The other thing with TEF is that it is a warm-season grass and more of a native grass, so not native to America but Africa, It also clumps, though. It's a clumping Mm -hmm. grass. And so horses will just rip that out by the roots.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The whole plant's then gone. Can make it challenging. That's trying to identify those grasses that are going to be good for horses to consume, finding that balance, but then also, like, you know, good for their digestive systems, but then, you know, being Mm -hmm. able to work in the pasture and with
0: how rough horses can be in those pastures. And so the general rule of thumb is. In well managed pasture can support one horse per two acres. So you have to have two acres per every thousand pound horse. And that's got to be of 75% coverage, at least six inches tall. That can support that one horse. Most of us don't have that. And that's in a normal management. That's not doing more intensive rotational grazing. Now, if you have less acreage and you have more horses, you can do rotational grazing, but it is very intense. I mean, you've got to be moving the horses every seven days. You've got to have enough fields that the field that they're in can rest for at least seven days. Right. So,
1: And you mentioned a couple of times earlier, I heard you talk about a sacrifice lot or dry lot. And so this kind of leads me into this question It's also can be called what we deem as planned animal concentration areas. So what purpose do they
0: serve and what are they? Well, that's a fancy name for it, but it's just an area that can be compacted. That maybe we've put a different surface on it so that when it's muddy and we don't want that it's raining a lot in the spring and we don't want the horses out in the fields ruining the pastures, we're giving those pastures a rest. That this sacrifice or high density area can withstand more horses. It's not meant to be a grazing area. We can put, say, I'm looking at the Penn State Extension, they've done a lot, and the University of Maryland have done a lot with rotational grazing. So I'm looking at a graphic now and it's really a square or a rectangle. And on the outsides, they've got paddock one, two, three, and four. And right down the middle, they have, and there are internal gates going into them. And again, we can share this, but right in the middle is the water, the hay, and the shelter. So that the horses come out of the field and the areas that we know are already going to be really heavily used around the hay feeder, around the water in the shelter. Those are in the sacrifice area or high density area where we've changed the soil, we've put gravel down, we've made that a lot more resilient to all of that traffic and horse pressure. Excellent. And it's got no grass or weeds in it. So for the horse with laminitis or metabolic issues, he can be in there and not grazing. So you're controlling every single thing they eat. People use it a lot in very wet areas. When I work a lot in the Northwest up in Washington State and up into Vancouver in Canada, it's very common for people to have wood chip areas where they use the wood chip Oh, yeah. As the kind of the top surface. So the manure and the urine can soak down through it. I know they do it a lot. I've got a friend in Vermont that's doing it with her cattle as well. And so at the end of the season, they actually scrape that top layer away and then use that in their strawberry and their oh, market yeah. garden area as fertilizer. So there's lots of things right. that you can do with it. But.
1: And those dry lots or sacrifice lots, you know, having to be very cautious with those, especially if you are in in a very like wet environment
0: because all that rainfall can just wash away the soil. Absolutely. So there's plans that you can get where you're going to dig down the soil, put geotech fabric, put larger stone, put smaller stone. If you're going to put wood chip on top, you can do that, or it's crusher dust. So this is a small area where you're going to spend more money to change the soil structure and the surface, but it's not a big, large area.
1: And then, you know, we've talked about this through this episode, but you know, different areas of the country are obviously going to be ready for grazing sooner rather than others, and some will be later. So this, of course, is not a one-size-fits-all pasture management program. But in an ideal world, as a nutritionist that, you know, is thinking about pasture management and how we're caring for our animals, would you prefer to have pastures grazed by just horses? Or are there benefits to having multiple species rotated through
0: grazing pastures? In an ideal world, that's the way you would do it. You would multi-species graze because we do know that horses, cattle, goats, sheep, all will graze different plants and the actual mechanism of grazing is different. So if you want to cut down on your mowing, for example, then you have your horses go through and graze and then behind them you might have goats or sheep because they're going to chew down those areas that the horses may not have graze. They're also going to carry different parasites. So in the three weeks between animals being, so you have horses and then maybe for another week you have another animal, another week you have another animal, and then maybe it's a rest week. Then there's also three weeks between when the horses would go back into that field. So there's multiple multiple benefits to doing it. All the animals will graze differently, put different pressure on the field, and so you can cut back on your diesel cost if you're mowing, but then also they're going to put different manure down for fertilizing and they all carry different parasites, which sounds bad when I say it that way, but goats and horses don't carry the same parasites. So, it's giving that field time and the parasites that are on the horses can't then jump into the goats okay. and they're not right. a carrier.
1: Right. right. And of course, we talk about this being an ideal world, right? I mean, not everybody's going to be yes, able to own world. all these animals. But if you have a means for doing it, it can actually have a lot of benefits when it comes to managing your pastures.
0: Absolutely. And see, I was very, very lucky. The piece of land that we live on when we bought it was a hayfield. It was just a big field with trees around it and nothing in the middle. And so I was able to plan everything. I was, we were surrounded by a river. I was able to fence out the river. I was able to plan exactly where I wanted to put the waterers, the gates, the fences. I have cattle, but I did bring in goats. I will tell you, the idea was great that they were going to eat the prickers in this one kind of grove of trees. They're the most useless goats <laughs> I've ever come for what across. what you were anticipating? They, are the fa- <laughs> they don't eat anything bad. They wait for me to give them hay and food. They're also the myotonic goats, which are the oh, fainting yes. goats. Oh, they won't even faint oh, on command. What? <laughs> so they're pretty useless. <laughs> so I would say... On paper, yes, it would be wonderful if people had enough land and they could plant it all out and they could have different species. But then when it comes down to it, the animals are going to do what they want to do. Yeah, because I mean, like you said,
1: although you know, a lot of goats tend to do that, yours decided that was not their path in life. So
0: (laughs) no, no, no. And I mean, it's why we have Stanley Premium Western Forage and why we grow such amazing quality forage is pasture is fantastic. I would say, I would probably go out on a limb and say 90% of our listeners, but at least 75% of our listeners don't have the luxury of pasture. They're at a boarding stable where maybe the boarding stable has 20 stalls in the barn and they have five acres of paddocks that horses really go out into for a few hours for exercise, but it's never going to be their main source of nutrition. So most of our listeners don't use pasture as a source of nutrition or a primary source. They're going to use it for socializing animals, a little bit of exercise, but they rely on processed forage, hay. To supply their horse their nutritional mm-hmm. needs,
1: and you were just talking about how you kind of had the, I want to say, luxury of being able to transition your land to how you needed to fit yeah, your needs. It was needs. the perfect scenario, and mm-hmm. so that leads me to my next question about, you know, if we have an opportunity to gain pasture or maybe build in new pasture what things should they be cautious of or aware of? Do you have any tips for establishing new horse pastures so they can kind of get off on the right foot with that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it depends on, again... What horses do you have? Do you have a herd of laminitic ponies or fat ponies that could be laminitic if weren't managed well? Do you have a group of, are you going to be running brood mares that need really high calorie pastures? They're giving them a lot of energy and protein. What were the fields used for before? You know, was it a lot of trees that you had cut down and now we're reestablishing grasses completely or were these hay fields that grew a monoculture of grasses, that maybe it was a Timothy field or an orchard grass field or an alfalfa field, and it was one type of grass and know that that is not going to make a great paddock or pasture for horses because if something happens to that one grass, the whole field is gone. So again, it's working with your local extension. I would rely on your extension office in your area, say, I have horses that I want them to do this. They're lactating brood mares. The field was this and I want it to do this. So then they're going to come in. They're going to be able to look at the existing plant species. Are they, number one, appropriate for the horses that you want or do we need to start from scratch and spray everything, kill everything and start from scratch? We're going to do a soil test and we're going to work out the pH of the soil. We're going to look at what's already in the soil and we're going to amend the soil before we even start. Then we're going to reseed if we're reseeding or we're overseeding and then that's going to be another three to six months before we can put horses out there. If we're then, when we're doing that and we want to change any fences, that would be when I would change fences. That would be when I would establish new waterers if we're putting that in, like try to do all of that at the beginning when we can't have the animals on it. But I I really say lean on your local extension. Yes.
1: And I think we can't like talk about that enough about just how Beneficial. Our local extension offices are for that kind of information because we can talk all day long about this and that, about you know horses and nutrition benefits and all of that kind of stuff. But when it comes to pasture management, different areas of the country, different areas in the county, the county that you live Mm -hmm. in, you know, Mm -hmm. the soil can be quite different, which is why it is so important to do that soil testing and things like that. And so, yeah, definitely leverage the extension offices that are in your area so Mm -hmm. and then kind of to close out this episode what would happen to pastures if we like let's say that you know we weren't really familiar with properly managing pastures but you know we got a horse and we wanted to try this and we just put the horses out and left them out there all summer what is that
0: going to do to that pasture if we don't maintain proper grass height or and we just As you said, let them graze, let them be out there. You're really going to turn it into a sacrifice paddock. The weeds will take hold. You'll get large areas of dirt because they will really compact those areas and they'll be around the gate, around the waterer, and that'll end up just spreading out and, and plants just won't grow there. And as I said, the best way to have a strong stand of pasture or grass, and people that grow lawns and tell you about lawns will say the same thing. The best way to have the most beautiful lawn is to have a really strong lawn and that will out-compete the weeds. Strong plants will out-compete others. And so weeds are very strong. So if you have a stronger grass and a pasture, and that's by making sure that we're not overgrazing it and compacting it and all the things, then you will keep the weeds out. Once we start to really destroy the field, for lack of a better word, it's going to be many years before you can get it back to normal. The further down the road you get of it being mismanaged, the longer you're going to have to take horses off it, to bring it back. You know, if you have a field that's really compacted and you've pretty much turned it into a dry lot, you may end up having to come back in and either till that soil to uncompact it. The others might use things like certain type of radishes that have super mm-hmm. long roots and they'll till they'll direct seed those in and they'll kind of break up, but yeah, you will take a long time to undo the damage that doesn't take long right. to create. Yeah. And nobody wants
1: to deal with that because then you put yourself in a situation where you're creating so much more work for
0: yourself. Yes. And so I think that people just have to be honest about what they want this piece of land to do for them. And most, as I mentioned, most of our horse owners don't have two acres per horse. So... Look at that field, not for its nutritive value to you, but for its ability to socialize your animals, exercise your animals, strengthen bones on young babies. But in doing that, know that it's going to be heavily trafficked. So Maybe around the water as and around the gates, we are really we're putting gravel areas there or wood chip areas there. We're growing plants that may be able to withstand more traffic, and but we're keeping them short because we know they're they're not getting a lot of nutritional value out of them. Or we just make a lot of paddocks that are sacrifice paddocks, and we spend a bit of money up in year one, or we do it gradually, and each year we change the landscape and we make that, you know, change the whole top of the the soil and we're putting in high traffic areas or wood chip, whatever it is. And we just know these fields are not going to be Mm -hmm. for grazing. So I think you just have to be honest about what you can and can't do with the land that you have and how much time it's going to take. And if you can't put in the time it takes to manage them well, then let's change the initial goal of those areas of land.
1: And I hope this episode has been helpful for our listeners because you've brought up a number of different things through today's conversation that I think is very good food for thought and to seriously just recognize how we're using the pastures and the main purpose for them and how it's serving us and our needs.
0: Because so, we're stewards of the land right, as well. Right. We're not just managing animals. We have to manage that land well. And I think we fall into a trap of thinking, oh, we all have to have these beautiful green pastures. I would rather go to a facility that has a barn and has many smaller areas, smaller paddocks that are well-fenced, good water system, that the ground, it may have no grass on it whatsoever, but it has wood chip or it has crusher stone, it's not muddy, it's picked out, and there's not manure everywhere, it's clean, and there's a hay feeder in there feeding hay, then go to a field that is eroded. Maybe they've got a watercourse near them or a swampy area and now we've got all this manure and dirt just running off the surface. We've got a lot of erosion. We've got little bits of green areas that are mainly weeds. That is not a good field. The previous description was much better, even though there's nothing green growing other than what might be growing in your planters. That's better management of the land because we don't have erosion, we don't have runoff, versus the second that might have a bit of grass growing, but the, really the land is not right. managed well. Right.
1: What would you say? would be a few of your takeaways that you would like listeners to leave this episode with?
0: Number one, if you are going to try to utilize pasture as a nutritive source and manage your horses on pasture, two acres per 1,000-pound horse is the minimum. Number two, I would say just what we were discussing. Have a good heart-to-heart with yourself, your partner in crime, your managers about What can we feasibly do with the budget we have, with the time that we have and the people that we have to manage this land and stick to that plan? Be okay knowing that I'm not going to have pasture per se for my horse because I can provide them all the forage they need, but I'm going to really manage these pieces of land well so we don't have runoff and erosion and that kind of thing. So I think knowing exactly what you can feasibly do, it would be point number two and then also knowing that throughout the year, if you are using pasture, if you do have some pasture, know that it's seasonal and that we want to make sure that if we do have some pastures, make sure that you have other sacrificed or high use areas that we can get the horses off the pasture and into this area when either we're in the middle of summer And it's a drought and there's not enough moisture to withstand them grazing. Or it's the very beginning of spring or end of winter and everything's really muddy and we don't want them to physically destroy the land. And again, you can work with myself or your local extension or Penn State, University of Maryland, both have great extension groups. Rutgers University also has a great extension program that can really help you set up an equine facility. Excellent.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Cubit, for today's conversation and for our listeners, we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you have any suggestions or ideas on topics that you would like us to discuss in future episodes, please reach out to us at podcast at stanleyforage dot com or if you just want to give us some feedback, did you like the episode? Is there something that you didn't like? No matter what, we just love to hear from you so Dr. Cubit, thanks again for being on today. Thanks, Katie. Looking forward to the next one. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water.